0: Ladies and gentlemen, and corner kick fam, welcome back. It's the three man booth for the first time in a couple of weeks. Uh, God bless. Uh, I am Nathan Strauss, uh, joined by Nick Gavinden.
1: Hello, hello. Yes, I am back after a uh, abbreviated hiatus to go work on, you know, some career oriented things. But I have, I have returned to the booth. It, it feels good to be back, and we have a lot, a lot
0: to talk about today. And also, of course, our resident ginger Caleb Rhodes.
2: Hello. We're changing up the format today. There's no analogies we're just we're just
0: ourselves. We have too much stuff to get into and besides what we're starting off the show with is all <laughs> heinous and so if I were to try it if I were to try and form an analogy for you guys it would end up just being offensive and I wanted to get us started off on a better foot today. But that's gross, Nathan. Facing (laughs) some serious charges from Italian public prosecutors. (laughs) And And with me, with me is the man who has slightly more money than Juventus right now. It's Caleb Rhodes. Um, But yeah, I guess we should start with. uh, We'll start with one of our favorite punching bags for the last couple of years, and that is the formerly, uh, you know, the former giant Juventus, who after dominating Italy for a decade, following. Uh, their first cheating scandal are now embroiled in another cheating scandal, uh, this time focused largely on the financials. But last week, the news came out that they the, the investigation into their finances that's been going on for quite some time uh, has resulted in a 15-point deduction, bringing them down from the top four to, I believe, 11th place. Uh, they are appealing it, so it's not final yet, but... It's also important to keep in mind that in Italy, as in, I think, many countries, uh, the top soccer teams, the soccer FA, and also the sort of financial and political side of things are all intertwined. Like Italy is a country where Berlusconi owns a soccer team. Um, You know, ex-prime ministers getting their fingers mixed into many pies is pretty commonplace. But when this news came out... um, it shouldn't really be a surprise to anyone. There were some great graphics showing the types of fraud that they've been committing. Uh, and we'll talk about other kinds of fraud in a couple of minutes as well. Specifically, a fraud in a couple of minutes. But you look at Juventus and their habit of buying a bunch of random young Italian players and then loaning them out, having them do poorly, and then somehow selling them for more money than they purchased. Something was shady, and it turns out that something is uh, basically their entire financials so uh, Nick and Caleb I know we've had some fun times sort of talking about how terrible Juventus soccer is uh, and I will say it's it's a particular kind of bad when you're cheating and also still playing poorly yeah well I well, think we wa-
2: we wondered you know I, I don't know a month or two ago now when the entire Juventus board resigned I was like hmm that's interesting because at the time you know I think we were calling for You know Allegri's sacking, of course. In the meanwhile, up until recently, he went on that eight-game winning streak in the league, but that's neither here nor there. But now we know that it's because you know the mastermind of the European Super League and the mastermind of you know only the second worst Juventus soccer scandal in in the 21st century, Agnelli, um, was really getting up to some. To some bad business. I do wonder. Like, I think we knew something was up, even with like something like the Arthur transfer, like the Arthur <laughs> Pianic, where Barcelona <laughs> bought Pianic for sixty million and sold Arthur to Juventus for seventy million, so that both could put down like those values on their books. Now, I think that was like shady, but not like outright fraud. That was just to get around, you know, the technicalities of you know the financial rules. But you're right. Like Juventus seems to own like half the league somehow. Um and and they're able to recoup a fair amount. So I think this is a sad fall um for a club that I think has been trying to regain their sporting stature um in the sort of accounting books rather than on the field. And it's also a, you know, a pretty large departure from I think the philosophy that led them to their dominance, you know, in the 2010s, which was they spent, I think, smartly, but they also had a tendency to bring in, you know, the best free agents on the market. Like they got Tevez for free. Um, they got uh, Pogba for free. They brought, you know, Kadira in for free, I believe. So they were really able to get like premium players for nothing back then. And now they're bringing in, you know, bad players for a lot of money. And it's just a bit, it's a bit tough and it's a bad luck for both the club and the league. Um, right now certainly
1: yeah and I think we can joke all we want about Juventus but Juventus being you know a, a perennial non-contender for Serie A has been bad for the league Juventus are an incredibly popular team they're the most popular team in Italy <laughs> ironically they're the second most popular team in their hometown of Turin But that's neither here nor there yeah I think Caleb hit on a lot of the points about Juventus specifically but I think for Serie A as a whole this is quite worrying because Juve aren't the only team that operate in this kind of questionable red zone when it comes to transfers. It came out yesterday that these same, you know, prosecutors and same investigative bodies are sniffing around Napoli in particular, the Victor Osimhen deal from his first transfer to from, from Lille to Napoli, which is surrounded in a lot of questions and uh, where that money was coming from, what the actual fee is. And I think a lot of um, clubs in Serie A kind of follow the Juventus mold, certainly in terms of like loaning players back and forth from team to team to sort of balance the checkbooks uh, in sort of an Alvaro Morata-ish way. And I think Juve may only just be the first domino to drop in terms of big clubs in Serie A being probed in such a manner, which I think is very concerning if you're, if you're a, an executive at Serie A right now.
0: Yeah, and obviously, for some reason, I mean, Serie A is probably the league that, for whatever reason, takes the most uh, austere measures when it comes to actually prosecuting their teams. Like, but be, what they're doing right now would be like unheard of in Spain because they obviously had you know a massive scandal in in Calcio that resulted in two of the biggest teams in their league getting you know rele- relegated by sort of the hand of the state. Uh, and while, you know, the time has long since passed since then, um, I, I do think that there is some sort of interesting uh, there is an interesting dynamic there. And also right. and like
1: also club finances operate a bit different in Serie A as well, because a lot of these teams, you know, like AC Milan, Juventus, before they built their new stadium, the Allianz Stadium, don't actually own their stadiums. They only own their training grounds. And well, and so they're, they're also not... public and Juve is publicly right. traded. Uve are well. a publicly traded company. And so they have to report these things in a very official, regulated way. And it's clear that they were not doing that, and they're engaging in some, uh, some falsehoods there. But how do you say
0: how do you say shenanigans in Italian, Kayla? We need to ask your dad actually. (laughs) (laughs) Shenanigans. Yeah, it's just (laughs) shenanigone with the cupped hands like that.
1: I think it's important to point out that finances in Syria operate a little differently to finances elsewhere in Europe, which is why I think we're seeing. Which is why I think, like Nathan, you were saying, it's 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 a bit more of a of a big deal in Syria than it would be if in the Premier League per se, where a lot of these clubs are owned privately.
0: Yeah, I think we can. Uh, you know, we'll obviously the thing is with all of these sporting matters is that everyone gets two appeals. You get the appeal to, you know, the highest court in your own country, and then you can also appeal all the, the way I- up to it's the C-A-S. International Olympic
1: Committee in Italy that are actually going to be adjudicating this appeal because the Olympic Committee is the highest sporting committee in 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 italy fun fact i learned that today
0: interesting and oh and also i guess the other side effect of this is that fabio paratiki who's now the sporting director of uh spurs is has been provisionally given a two-year ban or two and a half year ban uh from world soccer and in a time when you know conte and his staff sort of long-term future at spurs is very much in question uh this surely doesn't really help things if it you no. know weren't already bad enough that You know, I don't think he's done a terrific job with some of his transfers, but uh, that's neither here nor there. We can move on from the potential financial fraud element to a man who all three of us have really going back to like 2018, 2019, when when he first made his managerial sort of debut in the the Prem, um, none of us have believed that Frank Lampard is a particularly good or adept manager. However... We were all kind of surprised when an uh, an Everton side that was battling relegation decided to appoint him as uh, their guy. And lo and behold, after 38 matches from which he picked up 35 points, Everton, a team that's publicly on the market right now, have decided to let Frank go. Uh, A move that's long overdue, but again, just wacky stuff going on over on the blue part of, uh, of Liverpool.
1: Right. I think this sacking doesn't come as much as uh, as much of a surprise to us. I think Frank Lampard, interestingly enough, had cultivated a lot of goodwill with the Everton fans. I think he was challenging the likes of mashiri uh, over things like transfers and, you know, the atmosphere of the club. He was very much in line with who the fans wanted to see as like a public fronting face of Everton. But, yeah, it was clear that on the pitch a lot was left up to be desired. I mean, Everton, like you said, Nathan, picked up less points than matches under Lampard. They're firmly mired in an even worse relegation battle than they were in last season. They're currently in 19th place, having lost to David Moyes' West Ham over the weekend. That's a huge relegation six-pointer that they dropped there. The transfers under Lampard, I understand that he hasn't had a lot to work with since Everton are really under the shackles of FFP right now. But, you know, selling... Richarlison and bringing in the likes of Neil Mope was never going to really fix a lot of their issues and it leaves Everton now looking for their 13th manager you heard that right 13th manager including caretakers in seven years since Mashiri took over in 2016 which is an astounding Watford-esque number of managers and I think speaks to the fact that This Everton board, and you heard the fans chanting away at West Ham, sack the board, not sack the manager. This Everton board clearly has no functional idea of the direction where they want to take this football club. And Everton are, you know, banter about them all you want, and I do because I'm a Liverpool fan, but they are, you know, an institution of the Premier League. We have talked about this too last year, and we were thinking maybe, like, would they go down? It would be bad for the Premier League for Everton to go down, and it's looking like that is going to happen. Purely because the board can't seem to get it together. Uh, Arnaut Danjuma, who is a highly sought after transfer target for Everton, had agreed, um, you know, a loan fee with the club was on his way to Merseyside, has now decided to, you know, rip up that contract and go to Spurs instead. That's a huge loss for them. I don't really see like how they can make a strong recruiting push in the market right now with Leighton Baines as an interim manager. They're looking at, you know, Marcelo Bielsa to come in who never takes jobs you know halfway through a season because he needs like the summer to get his players fully up to you know his peak fitness. He um, only, leaves, because, jobs yeah, he only leaves jobs halfway through the season. Yeah, he only leaves jobs halfway through the season. And so now you're looking at the reports of, you know, Sam Allardyce coming back in and taking over this club in 19th place, Caleb, and it's a mess. It's really just entirely a mess.
2: Yeah, I think the board, I mean, didn't the board not go to one of their most recent games because the police said there were like credible threats the
1: police actually said there were no credible
2: threats. okay they were there were <laughs> there were incredible threats yeah I they guess. were
1: making some uh some manufactured statements there to kind of get oh to, to give side. them
2: cover for not showing up to the game or something like that i don't know
1: something like that yeah. whatever
2: I, I think whether it was credible or not it speaks to the fact that there's certainly a lot of anger in the fan base and i almost feel like firing lampard was i think certainly justified based on you know the performances they find themselves you know deep in the relegation zone more than halfway through or just over you know halfway through the season however it did feel a little bit like sacrificial like the board thought that by getting rid of lampard um they might in a way buy themselves some goodwill but i think as you sort of aptly noted he had actually i think uh developed a, a solid rapport with both his players and somewhat strangely I think even with the fans and I think that's come a lot because of how he's I think last season when he first took over and things were going bad it was tough because he was criticizing you know his own players and this was an issue at Chelsea as well but this year I think he's actually tried to kind of be a front for a lot of the criticism the team has faced um, and certainly without him now it will open the team up more directly to criticism I mean there was a video of Yeri Mina, like talking with a fan outside of the stadium, like outside of his car, and they were like, "What are you playing for? Like, are you gonna stay? Like, if we get relegated, um, in a game for Mina didn't actually play in, um, but I think the 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 players will certainly start to to get questioned more. And without Lampard, it's hard to see what kind of reinforcements would join this team on either a loan or you know a full time deal. It's tough, too, because this is a club that's also, you know, in the process of refurbishing their stadium. And it's just a bad situation to be in where you're building a new stadium, rather, um, where you're, you know, spending a lot of money to improve all of this infrastructure. And yet, you know, your, your future revenue um, is going to drop off pretty precipitously. And we've seen clubs struggle um, when they go down to the championship. And as I mentioned to you guys, like in our chat, If you look at a lot of the other teams around them in the Premier League, most of them have spent time outside of the Premier League. Like in a lot of ways, Everton is one of the only, I think, big teams um, historically to have really survived exclusively in the Premier League, you know, this century. Um, Because like West Ham have been relegated, Wolves have been relegated, Bournemouth have obviously been relegated, Southampton have been relegated, Leeds have been relegated, Leicester have been relegated. I can go on and on. Like. Most of this league has spent some time in the second division um, in this century, and to some extent, I feel like Everton's time, um, unfortunately, might, might be coming, and they're the only ones who haven't quite realized it yet, or at least the board right, has. I, I think the fans think the- certainly realize it. Oh,
1: definitely. I think the question is, though, Caleb, this club is so poorly run right now. If they go down to the championship, are they facing sort of a Sunderland-esque? I'm not saying they're going to go down to League One. But it's certainly a question of can they get things in order, you know, on the training pitch, in the boardroom, in the... No, we're
2: going to get another documentary, Everton, Till I Die. like
1: Everton, Till I Die. Like this is a scenario where they're mired in the championship. I think so. Structurally, they can't get it together. And it's like looking like that is going to be
0: the
2: case. And And I I think Watford is the right comparison that you made before, too.
0: Mm. Right, but they're Watford if Watford operated like they were Spurs. Or if they operated like they were, um, I don't know, not Arsenal, but, you know, some a club with a similar pedigree. And that is sort of what I was hinting at over text the other day, which is that since they made it to the what do they make it to the round of 16 or the quarterfinals of the Europa League under Martinez and then started signing, um, you know, medium to high profile players for silly prices. Gilfie Sigurdsson for 50 million, I think, is the prime example. They're that was in the. Thomas Rodriguez, an ungodly sum of money to sit on the bench. Yeah, and the it's just like, and, and they've obviously had some bad luck because, you know, they've had players get injured. I think they, they brought in what? Belossi, who tore his ACL right away, and that's like, you know, 20 million down the drain. Um, but for a club that never really established itself as a top six or top five, threat outside of a flash in the pan season under a manager who then left um a manager by the way who had success with a lot of players who David Moyes had brought in in the first place they haven't operated correctly in a long time um and it's no coincidence that or it's it's i mean the fact that they were just put up for sale today by Farhad mashiri is um he's sort of leaving a sinking ship which I think says something too because it's a terrible time to try and sell a team when you're in the relegation zone. Um, but I think the fact that he wants out now makes, makes me think that he sees or his, his sort of cohort sees that the uh, the writing is on the wall for a team that, you know, doesn't quite have their new stadium built, um, you know, could be losing hundreds of millions of dollars in value. Um, it's sort of like, this is the Kayla, I think you got it right. This is like the end of their, uh, This is the end of their avatar cycle. They need to go down and be be born anew. And listen, the only man who's going to benefit
1: from this is me, because I put them 20th in (laughs) our (laughs) predictions table (laughs) at the beginning of the season. (laughs) And I'm feeling mighty good about that prediction right now. But yeah, I think you guys are all incredibly correct. There's only two ways out of this situation for me. Either they appoint someone like Sean Deich who always seems to find a way. And there's a lot of Daishian players on this team. You know, Dwight McNeil, I think he gets something out of Neil Mope, playing as sort of like a, a target man sort of player. Uh, James Tarkovsky obviously has worked under him. Or, you know, they get relegated and then they appoint someone like a Marcelo Bielsa and a half, or a half Hasenhudel to come in and sort of revamp everything under their image, make them play with a very set system in the championship like we've seen Burnley do you know, this season, like play, play a certain specific kind of way, really just like throw everything at that system and try and work their way back up. But yeah, it's it's a dark time for
0: Everton right now. I mean, they haven't won a game since October and admittedly there was a, a break in there, but um, you know, they still haven't won a game <laughs> since October and are, you know, level on points with Southampton. So uh, yeah, banner year so far for, um, you know, you guys in the prediction battle, I suppose. Um, they also have the fewest wins in the league with three, which is you know doubly concerning. And yet they still managed to draw Man City a couple of weeks ago, which is extra hilarious. So, um, obviously, a, a situation that is worth monitoring because of what's at stake in terms of their Premier League position. Um, you know, it's it's pretty rare for a team to survive the drop after being in the relegation zone for two years in a row. Uh, remember, Burnley did it like three years in a row, which was crazy. Leicester obviously did it, and then you know won the title. Um, but otherwise, success stories like that are you know the exception that proves the rule. So, um, it's not a situation that can be fixed by any one transfer, which I think is important too. So, we shall see. Uh, the bottom of the table is nuts, though. There's only three points that separates 14th place Leicester and 20th place Southampton. So it is possible that a new manager bounce and, you know, taking a couple wins can make a big difference. So we will keep an eye out there. Um, But as of now, certainly Southampton, Everton, and Bournemouth are the three odds-on favorites to go down. Um, Before we get to uh, the part where I am really happy, there was a great bit of... uh, I guess banter this last week after Salernitana got smoked by Atalanta, allowing uh, eight goals for the first time in uh, Serie A history. No team had ever scored eight goals in a league game. After that humiliation, they were like, "Hey, Davide Nicola, your our manager. Uh, why don't you just you know screw off?" And they fired him. And then. Two days later, they were like, (laughs) hey, Davide Nicola, (laughs) want to come back? And he did. So he is back and coaching Seller Natana again. But I'm not really, I'm not totally sure what to make of this story other than uh, it's hilarious. Okay, so here's my take, right? They played Napoli at the
1: weekend and they played better. You know, they still lost, but they played like a little bit better, right? And it looks like... (laughs) Ironically enough, they had a bit of like a new manager bounce, right? Under the old manager. So, my take is that like this should become more of a thing. And even broader, my take right now is that Liverpool should sack Jurgen Klopp. (laughs) And then in like three days, reappoint him. (laughs) And get the new manager like 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 what happened in like 2016 when we appointed Klopp and like got a new manager bounce from him and all will be well and he'll like parachute us back into the Champions League or like rev us back up into the Champions League places. This should be more of a thing. Like sack your coach and then rehire him in three days and hope that like some sort of wacky new manager bounce can happen from the same guy. I am a huge fan of this and I hope Davide Nicola is, you know. It is he sends Salernitana on like a five game undefeated run following this insane you know piece of soccer news?
2: I feel like this is the soccer equivalent of like faking your own death. Like in this circumstance, <laughs> I like in this circumstance. I, I mean, I guess I mean more like your your Klopp scenario because obviously he was actually sacked. But I feel like it would just be like I'm gone, but wait, I'm back. Um, Like I'm in some sense that I'm thinking about it. I'm still kind of like it's very WWE. Yeah, it does. It does kind of have that like (laughs) theatric quality. Could you imagine
1: imagine if Roman Abramovich figured out that you could do this?
2: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, he functionally already did that. He brought back half his managers for like instance. I guess the question would be, it'd be hilarious if, you know, like six years later or something, like sometime a few years ago, like, man, you just brought Alex Ferguson back kind of it's like oh no like it was all like we we're just playing around this whole time um so, like
1: 10 years we were just you know yeah. we we're just waiting for the moment yeah
2: unfortunately i think more than anything this is just like syria as we discussed earlier kind of does whatever it wants until <laughs> told otherwise um and i think uh, i don't foresee a lot of clubs
0: well, speaking of uh <laughs> speaking of doing whatever it wants i i, I was um looking at Salernitana's Wikipedia page. Have you guys ever looked at Salernatana's badge up close? Cause it's kind of sick. I believe it's like an art deco seahorse that's like in the badge. It's very cool. Second of all, um, I don't watch all that many Salernitana games because I'm not a fan of really shit football. But if you look at some of the players they have, it's like a who's who of like random names that were never like great, but still like, memorable for some reason so like they have, uh, they've Christoph got 30, now. yeah they've got Piontek they've got 36 year old antonio candreva who seems to be he seems to be ageless because he's been in Serie A forever like he was part of that sick lazio team um when lazio challenged for the title they've got memo ochoa who just signed for them and is their starting goalie now they've got former spurs legend feddy fazio who's now 35 years old they've got lapsed wonder kid tawny trinidad valenya who was at one point like a really hot... Come- I must have been in like football manager 13 or 14. And then he, he ended up for in Bournemouth. And then and he, he played at- for Esquadrador. Yeah, he's yeah. like... So their team is really weird. Um And they also just... Frank Ribery just retired,
1: but he was also playing for them for the past season and a half or so.
0: Yeah, so truly just like very weird stuff. Um
2: Also, I'm just, just reading this- now. They were... You know, founded in 1919, but then refounded in 2005 and then refounded again in 2011, which is also a very Holy scary off thing. So this but is like a, this but is all a, I'm saying is, is part of, part of their thing energy thing. is just like they keep coming back, whether it's them Dude, or their no, no, no. managers. Dude, it's or...
0: The, um, the, the time loops are getting shorter and shorter. Like, <laughs> we've got to keep an eye out. Um, <laughs> they're going to reform after the next match week. Uh, but yeah. That's uh, I thought that was pretty funny, but you guys went. It's Sir crazy. Alex I mean, they,
2: they, they won. They were in Serie D in 2011 when they were refounded, and since then they've gone from Serie D to you know, admittedly the bottom of Serie A. But that's like a pretty impressive rise. Oh
0: no! But this is what I'm saying though. Serie D and Italy loves relegating clubs for like no reason. Because remember. Parma famously were relegated all the way to Serie D after like reforming as well. And you look at Serie D and Serie C, uh Livorno is also in Serie D right now. They were in um they were in Serie B like a year ago. Uh Venezia are like in the relegation zone right now in uh in Serie B, so they could go down to Serie C. It does seem like they are the least financially secure of all of the the big five leagues without, without a doubt. And so I wonder if that just lends itself to stuff like this happening more and more often. So really maybe you are more blameless than, than we thought, but uh, what a conclusion to reach. <laughs> yeah. After all of that, um, I'm just looking at the Serie C table right now too, uh, just to see like what clubs we recognize there. And uh, there's let not to be confused with Leche. Uh, let's see. Let's see. Siena, who were in uh, Serie A like a decade ago, and uh, Pescara, who were in Serie A like three years ago. So I guess the more you know. Anyways, uh, you guys mentioned Sir Alex Ferguson. He was one of the many in attendance on Sunday. Uh, I want one of you guys to team me up to talk about this game because it made me so happy.
1: Well, I think this is a game of the season contender. Obviously, we're talking about Arsenal 3. Manchester United 2, a resurgent Manchester United under Eric Ten Hag, who, you know, briefly, and by briefly, I mean for about a week, were working themselves into the Premier League contendership uh, title argument space. Uh, They now, I think, have been knocked out of that with this defeat. But I think this game is all about a statement victory, potentially a championship-defining victory for this upstart, up-and-coming Arsenal team who seem to have it all going right now. They have more points at this stage of the season than the Invincibles did way back when in 2004. And it is looking quite rosy right now. There's a, a bunch of brilliant performances on display from Arsenal in this game. An incredible curler from outside the box from Bukayo Saka. Zinchenko playing out of his skin as an inverted fullback, you know, tucking into midfield, really commanding that space, looking like a player who had, you know, been here before in sort of title deciding or title contending games as he has bu- as he has been with Manchester City. And I think, you know, the player of the match was Eddie Nketiah filling in the large shoes of Gabriel Jesus and scoring goal after goal after goal. I think after a lot of us, you know, had counted him out as a wonder kid, he is showing that he can be a reliable goal scorer for this championship contending Arsenal, Nathan Strauss. But yeah, Caleb, I'm interested in your take on this game particularly from like a United side but I thought you look back on the games that you know make champions this is going to be a game that we look back on if Arsenal do go on to win the championship
2: for sure and I think there's you know I think first on the Man United side of things they're missing Casemiro who I think um, foolishly got suspended or perhaps Ten Hag foolishly you know left him on to get his you know customary yellow card um, and certainly the midfield two of McTominay and Ericsson does not quite have the same quality as, you know, Casemiro um, and Ericsson. And so I think that's big. And in general, Ooh, they were trash. Yeah. And in general, you know, despite scoring twice, um, man, you were roundly outplayed. I mean, Arsenal put up something like 25 shots, man, you put up something like six Um and so I think the the scoreline suggests Man U put up a bit more of a fight than I think they did as a team. That said, Marcus Rashford I think continued to you know elevate himself um, into real kind of like world class levels um, in this game. He scored an amazing you know low driven shot um, from distance, and then you know <laughs> Martinez scored a bit of a. Uh, A lucky goal. But I think that too is the fact that I don't think Arsenal were really playing at their best in this game. And they had to weather, you know, a few individual errors from Ramsdale in particular um, for the Martinez goal. You know, they brought off Ben White at halftime um, because he was on a yellow, I think, or maybe he had a little injury. Uh, But, you know, Tomiyasu came on and played well. Trussard, who they just signed, you know, only got 10 or so minutes at the end. But I think He looked very sharp in that period of time. And I think that's, you know, basically what makes this such an important win from Arsenal is that, you know, they got the job done, you know, at the death, um, you know, scoring in the 90th minute um, on a day when, honestly, I don't think they were playing at their highest level. Um, This is also, you know, against a Man U team that is the only team to have beaten Arsenal, you know, in the league this year. And so I think for that reason it was showing that, you know, they've elevated themselves, you know, since the beginning of the season as well. So a huge, huge, huge win for Arsenal that keeps them, you know, it what eight points ahead of City right now or or five points, but they have a game in hand. Um, so that's a pretty good, pretty good place to be, I would say, if you're Arsenal.
0: I think it's crazy that um, you know, on a day where Arsenal definitely didn't look their best they still put up 10 times more XG than United did um, without any penalties or anything. Um, You know, United had won or United had not lost a game in their last 15 prior to this, which uh, made me a little bit nervous, especially because United had beat us on a day where Arsenal played really well at old Trafford back in the fall. And it sort of ended the really hot start to the season. And once we went behind, Rashford's goal was really, really good. Um, You know, he not nutmegs party, but sort of like shrugs him to the side uh, and just lasers it in from like 25 yards. I was like, oh, it's just going to be one of those days and we're going to lose like 1-0 or something like that. But Arsenal responded pretty closely thereafter and really the entire second half, even after the goal, Arsenal spent it in United's half. uh, And that was really, really encouraging. you know, Bukayo Saka's goal was spectacular. It actually literally like brought a tear to my eye. It was so, so good. Um, like he, it's crazy because I didn't think Martinelli played particularly well, but he and Nketia and Martinelli, an entire front line that costs a combined six mil, you know, that's a pretty ridiculous, that's, that's ridiculous value. Um, you know, and it, it makes me very happy to see Guys who come through the academy having that sort of success, but the I late winner
1: that I jumped off my couch when that goal went in.
0: Yeah, <laughs> like I know. I, I yeah, I, I literally screamed um because you don't you don't see that all the time. And also, like the last couple of weeks, it's been a daunting schedule for Arsenal. Um, you know, going back to Newcastle, who are in the top four, then away at Spurs, then home to United. That's three games against. You know, it's probably three of the five or six toughest opponents that you'll face. And with each successive win, I grow more and more confident that, um, you know, Arsenal are going to win the league. And I'm not saying that they will yet. I'm not at that level of confidence. But I can definitely say that, you know, look, only one other team has, you know, been has ever played at the pace that Arsenal are playing at right now. And that's Man City in 2016-17 you know Arteta last year said that you need to score 90 goals to win the Premier League. Arsenal have 45 exactly halfway through. So that's that's something. And also like I was just reminded of when the in the the year that Leicester won the league, uh Arsenal were top at Christmas and people have said that, you know, that that Arsenal sort of blew that chance. And it was definitely a flash in the pan because it was sort of aging players who weren't really the future of the club who were providing all of this. Um, you know all of this presence and everything really fell off after that this feels just like much much more sustainable and it feels like we're entering a period where Arsenal are elite and that might not be changing based on the age profile and players who Arsenal are bringing in and the direction that the club is heading in Um, and that just makes me very happy because Arsenal have been good but not great or mediocre but not great for the majority of my adult life so I'm a I love this, like, from start to finish.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think Arsenal have kind of grown into the Liverpool role in the league right now. By which I mean, I don't think that, like, every season, you know, for the next four or five years, let's say, they're going to, like, win the league and, you know, beat Man City to the title. Because I still think there is, you know, a resource disparity there. But they're going to be very, very competitive at the top. And I also think, you know, they're setting themselves up for success, you know, in cup competitions and European competition as well. I guess the question I have for you, um, you know, looking at their schedule coming up, they have to face, you know, an Everton with the interim manager bounce. And I'm curious (laughs) (laughs) uh, how worried you are about facing... (laughs) <laughs> yeah, the Baines's Baines is Everton, I think, could be could be a bit of a challenge away uh on, on February fourth with a Layton you know Baines, FA Cup Layton, weekend in between.
1: Layton Baines is gonna go, yeah. Tutor, you were only you only adopted the dark. <laughs> I was born at the Everton, molded by it. Yeah. Leighton
2: Baines is gonna go player manager, I think. Um he's he's gonna sign himself this January. And then
1: banging a free kick in the 90th yeah,
2: minute. that's all you need. You know, honestly, they should just spend all the money to get Ward Prowse, like two hundred million dollars to South- Southampton for Ward Prowse. But sorry, Nathan.
0: No, I just think, um, you know, what's different about this year's team compared to last year's team, where top four was the goal, is that like this team also just doesn't draw games. Like I think we have we have two draws. One of them was Newcastle, and the other one, it might have been Everton. It was some. Uh, it was Southampton. Back in like October so there is a little bit of a cushion where like look it's possible that there's a day where you know nothing works and a team like Everton or a team like Brentford can take some points off of you um but yeah like uh, it, it, this is obviously all happening while the talismanic striker who was brought in over the summer for 50 million has been out injured so I don't know. I th- I, I'm i feeling very confident right now. And for the first time in a really long time, I don't feel like there's a specific opponent, with the exception of Man City, um, who I wouldn't think Arsenal would be favorites against, which is uh, not really something that I've ever experienced. And obviously, like I wasn't really sentient for the Invincibles season, um, but I'm imagining it felt something like this.
1: Right, and I think I just want to highlight one player before I move on from Arsenal, because we've talked about Saka, we've talked about Martinelli, we've talked about Gabriel Jesus and, and Ketia, but Martin Erdegaard, what a success story this man has turned into. Easily someone who, you know, signs for Real Madrid at a young age, 16, makes his debut, becomes the youngest player to ever make his Real Madrid debut, and then he, like, goes into obscurity for a long time. You know, several loans to Eredivisie clubs, Um, you know a little bit of time at Real Sociedad but gets the loan gets the playing time at Arsenal and becomes not only like this talismanic figure in midfield like he ran the show yeah he's our captain against against Christian Erickson and Bruno Fernandes and Scott McTominay and he has been running the show all season taking on the leadership role from Aubameyang at the age of 23 24 he is yeah 24 he, he just turned 24 He is going like he is astounding. Some of the passes that he plays, the vision that he has, that little like outside of the boot, like lob pass that he did to play in. I think it was in Ketia. They didn't end up scoring from that, but just like unbelievable technique. And I think it's a huge credit to him that he has gone from, you know, wonder kid to close to world class player, because oftentimes I think players like him, you know, we talk about when they're 16, 17, 18, and that's like the last time that we talk about them in those terms. And he has snatched at this opportunity and become the linchpin of this Arsenal team and one of the best midfielders in the league for my money.
0: Yeah, I think last episode, Caleb and I had sort of come to the conclusion that the Premier League player of the season is going to be a Norwegian. Um, I guess quickly, Erling Haaland now only needs nine goals in the next 19 games to, or sorry, 10 goals in the next 19 games to become the all-time single season uh, Premier League Uh, record holder he only needs nine to tie and frankly for someone who's been scoring at about 1.3 goals per game in the prem guys I think he's gonna do it
2: yeah now I think there was there was a lot of you know I think fake chatter about oh like something's you know wrong with Holland now and then you know he scores a hat trick and then is already past you know what would have won the Premier League top scorer what the last four seasons um, and you know he would only be beaten by you know Salah and and Suarez really um, maybe Aguero in one season or Harry Kane but not too many people um, you know in the last like decade and a half have scored more Premier League goals in an entire season and he's done it in you know 20 games so he'll he'll be fine I think the question is you know where where do we think he's actually gonna get to? You know, he's on pace for forty five ish right now. You know, he has four hat tricks right now, um, which he's done faster in the Premier League than anyone else. It's kind of crazy looking at the list of of players who he beat to that stat. You know, do we think he's gonna kind of crest around, you know, upper thirties? Is he gonna really get into the forties range? If you guys had to guess right now, like where do you think?
0: He's gonna get forty one.
2: Forty one, okay.
0: Nick, i think he's gonna
1: get upper 30s i don't think he's gonna breach the 40 goal but i could totally see it happening you know this is unprecedented scoring numbers that we're seeing from holland and i think the only question is in his brisha dortmund tenure he tended to have one big injury every single season we haven't quite seen that yet at man city so maybe they're doing something different yeah. in terms of well, well
2: I he, also got, you know, he also got like a month
0: and a half off. yeah
2: that's what i mean but- like i think something like the World Cup break is an absolute boon to, like, potentially some of the superstars that didn't go. And, like, he probably got to get the rest that he probably needed to avoid injury. And so I think, if anything, he's he's only more, like, supercharged. Um, it out, But he definitely is, like, historically a bit of an injury risk. Um, yeah. So we'll
0: see. And briefly on Man City, they fell behind 2-0 to Spurs at home last week, um, including conceding a goal to... Uh, Emerson Royale which uh is never good but they then came out and basically just it's like they flipped a switch and became Man City again and scored three goals in like 15 minutes and just destroyed Spurs in the second half it could have been like five or six too uh and they won that game so yeah um you know they're they're five points off Arsenal um having played one more game right now but uh you mentioned Dortmund and I feel like that's probably a good segue to uh Bundesliga Bundesliga watch, which um <laughs> guys we said it wasn't on, and then we said it was on, and then we said it wasn't on, and now we're saying it's on again because Bayern have forgotten how to score goals and everyone else has decided to start scoring like eight goals a game.
2: Yeah, I mean coming out of this incredibly long like when was the last Bundesliga game before these ones? It was like probably the last in... week
0: of October. It was, was
2: yeah. It... It was,
1: this is the the end of the winter pause.
2: Yeah, but yeah, ja, the winter pause. It's been a long, long time since we've seen you know Bundesliga teams in action, and I think the question was, you know, who would kick on? Would would Bayern kind of resume their you know mantle at the top? And I think they started to pick up some great form before the break. Um, You know, Union have been cooling off, as we noted, hence Bundesliga watch being off. But then you know, Freiburg uh we're seemingly potentially is that, <laughs> Freiburg.
1: <laughs> we're, sorry, there's there's no
0: Freiburg here. Yeah, there's no Freiburg here.
2: <laughs> we're we're seemingly you know well placed to to become you know like the chasing team. However, then this you know week's Bundesliga games happened. Freiburg got absolutely demolished um by Wolfsburg 6-0. That was completely out of nowhere. Um, Bayern drew Leipzig, Bayern, who actually are missing quite a few players due to injury, um, including, you know, talismanic, you know, goalkeeper Neuer, who had a skiing accident and broke what his leg, um, and is out for the rest of the year. Wolfsburg then went on to beat today, um, you know, Hertha 5-0. So they've now scored, you know, 11 goals, um, in their first two games back. Leipzig beat Schalke 6-1 today. Köln beat Werder Bremen 7-1. So there's just like a lot. Dortmund beat Augsburg 4-3. This became a very exciting league because Bayern have not picked up, you know, very many points, two points from these games back. And suddenly, you know, Leipzig have, and Wolfsburg, who are somehow in sixth, um, are, are surging back up the table. So maybe, just maybe Bundesliga watch is, is back on.
0: And by the way, shout out, shout out to Sebastian Hilaire, who made his competitive return, which is uh, awesome. Yeah, there's a video of um, the announcer in the uh, in the arena announcing his name. uh, And it was really, really cool. Uh, So, yeah, good stuff. Good stuff there.
1: I mean, yeah, not only is that is that an incredible story, obviously returning from cancer, a cancer diagnosis that occurred earlier in uh, 2022. But the fact that he's made his return so quickly and the fact that he is going to become, I think, a key part of this Borussia Dortmund team. We know how talented he is. He was brought in as, you know, sort of the Erling Holland replacement. This man can score goals and shoot Dortmund up the table. And it's just an incredible story that he's back so soon. So, yeah, that's important to highlight that. Gio Reyna, you know, scoring the oh, an unbelievable, unbelievable banger. winner against Augsburg and then doing the, you know, shut out the noise celebration, because we, obviously we know everything that's going on. You know with his family <laughs> in the USMNT I mean, <laughs> camp right now, but I thought that was a pretty statement. Uh, wait, Liga wait. Movement. So
2: on, I don't know if you guys saw his, you know, his celebration where you know he put you know two yeah, fingers the, up. The, the, so there's been a lot of conspiracy yeah, theories struck, about uh, the what noise. it might mean, shutting out the noise, but also people have linked it to the fact the that
0: pie thing, right? Yeah. So
2: Berhalter supposedly at one point said, um, "I think it was before the World Cup started." Um was like, oh, we don't have like a Memphis. Oh, it was after, sorry, it was after the the US lost to the Dutch. He was like, We don't have a Depay um in our team. And the celebration that Gio Reyna did after scoring this like crazy wonder goal off the bench um was Depay's you know, goal celebration. So hard to know for sure. Um, but there is perhaps <laughs> the verhalter radar family feud has, has not died, yeah. perhaps.
1: Kind of a big week of people stealing celebrations because Sokka hit Marcus Rashford's like... Uh, that was He did it twice, actually. Too. Yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah. Um, and then Joshua Kimmich, I mean, I just, by the way, hit the Rashford as well today after he scored oh, right. uh, yeah, the yeah, Equalizer. Yeah. So...
1: I think it just speaks to the, uh, the amount of parity that we're seeing, you know, both in the Bundesliga and I think we've talked about the fact that Syria is probably the most competitive league right now just in terms of you know the title race and teams being very close but there's a lot of talented players in the Bundesliga and I think as we've discussed on this podcast uh, defending is optional <laughs> at times in this league and it is once again proven to be the case but yeah you know my solution for Bayern would be to sack nogglesman <laughs> uh... <laughs> <laughs> and wait, like
0: <laughs> wait, like two or three days,
1: and then you know, miraculously, you know, he's back riding that like electric skateboard or whatever into training. So that would be my solution if I'm Bayern Munich, and also I think maybe buying a striker <laughs> to replace Lewandowski. Yeah, the fact that this team experiment has not worked.
2: Yeah, and the fact that this team currently, you know, when they're not starting Mueller, um with, you know, Musiala taking his place. The fact that this team relies so much on, like, how well Chupamoting performs um, is a little bit scary. Well,
0: because... I mean, it, they weren't planning on Mane getting injured, in fairness, but yeah. No, no,
2: right. But even Mane is not really a, like, true center forward. Like, yes, he can play there, but I'm not sure that's his best position. Like, no, Chupamoting is. over
0: the is... age of 30, he's on the yeah. decline. Whatever happened to Jan Fiete Arp? I think Where he's in, that like guy.
2: The third division. I bet he. Pl- I think he plays for like 1860 Munich. Let's
1: right see. Plays, yeah, are he plays for Hamburg or something. Jan fiette art plays for Holstein
0: Kiel. Holstein Kiel. Oh, Holstein Kiel. In, in the zwei Bundesliga. The zwei Bundesliga. I'm the zwei. Tw- no, the zwei. The two. The two, the, the, the two. Thank you, Derek Ray.
1: Um, uh, or as uh, we say on this podcast, the Bundesliga D.
0: Let's see who else El is
2: on <laughs> Holstein Keel. There's an American on the team.
0: On <laughs> um, Holstein Keel? Is it uh, yep. Julian Green? Nope. Oh, uh is it someone weird like Corey Burke?
2: Nope. It's a twenty year old named Nico Carrera.
0: I have no idea who that who... is. Who did he come from Red Bulls?
2: No, he came from North Texas SC to Holstein Keel's second team.
0: Holstein Kill is dope. Their logo looks like a, a brewery, a brewery name.
2: They also have on this team names you might know, Lewis Holtby.
0: Oh, I actually
2: formerly of, know that. Crystal Holtby ended up. Who's probably surprisingly still only like twenty nine or something like yeah, that. He's probably he's probably oh, like he's thirty two. He's thirty
1: two. Thirty two. Oh my god. <laughs> The the moment in this podcast where I was like, oh, we've been doing this for a long time is when Nathan said that Federico Fazio, who I remember, he joined Spurs when he was like 25. Well, this is what I was saying.
0: Yeah, but this is what I was saying. So we had a a nice moment in our group chat the other day where it was, you know, before Spurs and uh, it was before Spurs Fulham. And, you know, foot mob has its flaws, but in general does a pretty good job of getting lineups going all the way back to like 2012, 2013 And looking at the names in that, in that team, like just some absolute, like the league, the Premier League has gotten so much better from bottom up, I think since when we were kids, because some of the players on that Fulham team, and really a lot of the players on that Spurs team as well, were just like legends in the sense that like, I can picture their like 2D head scans in FIFA 11, but like so, so bad compared to what we expect nowadays and, and i thought that was really funny take.
1: here's my hot take the premier league might be better now but i don't like it bring back
0: <laughs> bring we need back the old logo barclays,
1: back is what i bring back the barclays the bank sponsorship call up the barclays premier league again get uh ashken de get mark schwartzer in goal get kyle Knox. mark Schwarzer. by the way mark schwartzer who's uh, now
0: 51 years old <laughs> He's 51. Oh, yeah! My God. You forgot he was like uh, 40 years. He was 40 years old in the starting goalie for Fulham. So who was playing center back for Fulham in that lineup that we looked at? Arsenal. Uh, play, oh, I'm, Felipe Sondraz. Yeah, Felipe Sondraz, Arsenal legend. Jan Arne
1: Riise was their left back. <laughs> Emmanuel Adebayor was lining up as Spurs' striker. Like this is peak Barkley is right here. And in fact, I'm pitching this right now that we do an episode or part of an episode. That is our all-time favorite Barclays-era
0: lineup. Oh, get ready for a whole lot of Gervinho, because he's who comes to <laughs> mind. Uh, Gervinho, <laughs> Andriar Uh dude, so, <laughs> But this is what I'm saying. But this is also what I'm saying. And, and we can sort of wrap things up here, but this is also what I'm saying. Like, when I look at this Arsenal team right now and remember that, like, the formative Arsenal teams of my youth were starting a strike partnership of Marwan Chamak and Nicholas Bentner, like, it's come such a long way. Uh, and really, Caleb, I think you might be the only one of the three of us who hasn't truly had to suffer through a team just being crap with like crap players. Uh, but this is like, I don't
1: think Jay Spearing was ever going to get any time on the Barcelona bench.
0: Yeah. Um, but Gumbau know,
2: like, made a few appearances. Yeah. Gerard Gumbau.
0: Um, who's the guy? Wilfried Kaptoum. He's yeah, um, back uh, in Spain. He's yeah, now he in Las Reds. Palmas.
2: Yeah. Good for uh, him.
0: Yeah, um, but anyways, it's just it's just funny. Like all of this stuff is like time soccer is a good way of measuring time, and it's also a scary way of measuring time, because you know, the world is a strange place and uh time is not always linear. I guess we'll leave you with the note that no matter how bad your week is going, it surely isn't going worse than uh supporters, all ten of them, for sixth-tier French side pay de Cassel, who were drawn against PSG. Pay de Cassel are worth four hundred thousand uh, euros. PSG are worth, obviously, multiple billions. And for whatever reason, PSG decided to play their first team. Uh, they played ninety minutes of Mbappe against a semi-pro team from basically the France-Belgium border. Um, many of the players on Pay de Cassel are actually PSG ultras, which was very funny. Um, but. <laughs> yeah Mbappe scored five goals uh France has way too many domestic cups and uh this was just dumb everything about this was dumb and Neymar was the first player to get booked which is yeah really funny. well
2: I also love that um that was it like 16 year old 17 year old was a Zaire Emery yeah um yeah. didn't get any minutes in this game but did start a league 1 game that they lost to Ren a few days prior just make it make sense for me make it it's make called sense.
0: priorities caleb <laughs> um yeah it was it's it was dumb uh but at the same time very funny uh and yeah france is france is weird uh i guess league unwatch is sort of on uh while we're while we're talking about this because france has 18 domestic cups it's it's hard to keep track of when they're playing you know league games and when they're just sort of dinking around but PSG still have a three-point lead on lawn like we did, uh like we did last time. Anything else from from you guys?
2: No, I think that's good. Good for me.
0: All right. Well, uh FA Cup weekend, uh double match day for the Bundesliga and for La Liga. Um EFL Cup action is going on, but I just don't really care about that. Um and then we're not too far away. We're a week or two weeks away rather from uh Champions League returning. So some fun stuff coming up all around. Uh, we'll probably talk to you soon. Oh, I mean, we'll certainly talk to you soon. But uh, we'll probably have some more fun stuff to talk about by then. You know, transfer window recap, all of that stuff. But until next time, I have been Nathan Strauss.
2: Caleb Reds.
0: I've been Nick And
1: Actually, after this podcast, we're going to fire Nathan. <laughs> as the host of the show only to reinstall him <laughs> during the next episode
0: hey 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 and hopefully get the new host bounce so, no we
2: have those new AI tools now we don't need Nathan anymore
0: um, yeah you can just replace me by saying hey, uh, hey AI like make, a, make a, a bad and wrong take and, and speak it in a, in, a, in a weirdly high voice but anyways we will see you all we will see you all next time i uh-